Well, it is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Philip. I also am one of the pastors here and have the joy of preaching to you this morning on this day. Um, Very thankful for my mom, thankful for my wife, who is the mother of our children, thankful for all the moms who are here. Mother's Day is an interesting day for me because it's also an anniversary of something other significant that happened in my life, which was uh, a church that I was very influenced by and trained in and sent out to pursue pastoral ministry. It was the day that I preached my first and last sermon there as I went out to go to seminary and then become a pastor. That was 12 years ago. Now, you might think, if you don't know me too well, and you have ideas of what it means to be a pastor, you might think that over 12 years, a person who regularly teaches God's word and counsels other people and reads the Bible a lot and presumably prays, would make huge strides in their life in all kinds of ways. And praise God, I think there has been growth. But I am sorry to say that I still struggle after 12 years of being a pastor. And one particular way that I continue to see ways I want to grow, even though I've been doing this for a little bit of time now, is that I would like to grow in not being afraid. The other day, Campbell, who is my oldest son, asked our family, we were sitting around and he he was asking a lot of great questions. He asked, if we could have anything in the world, what would it be? What would it be? Kids, what would it be? What would you say? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you my answer. I said, I said, pastor of 12 years who reads the Bible a lot and trusts Jesus and follows him and counsels other people to do the same and reminds us to hear Jesus' words when I'm afraid we can trust him, when we're afraid we can trust in him. I said $100 million. Now, I've thought about that answer several times since it happened. Why did I say that? Of all the things. I almost decided, as I have the opportunity to preach this summer, to do a summer series on Proverbs. Because Solomon, who was asked the same question from God, told God he wanted wisdom. I'm aware that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, valued wisdom over money. Why do I want that much money? It's not because I want fancy things. It's not because I want power. It's because of fear. I often fear financial ruin. It's an area of my life I'm constantly noticing. It's... Uh, it's something that I want to grow in. As I already told you, I want to get to a place where I don't fear financial ruin, but as it is, I imagine what would happen if I mismanage our family finances or the financial system crashes, like in the great depression or inflation drives our economy in the gutter and leaves me and my family destitute. Money seems to my unwise way of thinking to be protection from ruin. What about you? Is there a type of ruin you fear? Maybe you're afraid of your reputation being ruined. Or your marriage or your family one day breaking up. Maybe you walk around with the, same, with the sense that you're one misstep away from being exposed as who you think you really are. And every relationship you will have, 
you have will be ruined. In the face of such fears, what do you think you will need to protect you from ruin? Interesting idea to think about this from a national perspective, isn't it? What does a country need to avoid ruin? Maybe economic prosperity, a powerful global trade status, good leadership, strong national defense. Maybe me mentioning these things make you realize your fear is that our country will go to ruin. Lord willing, this summer, we're going to go through a book of the Bible named Nehemiah. And we'll go through the whole book. Nehemiah is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament, chronicling the life and events of the nation of Israel. Nehemiah himself will narrate this book, and his story begins with a nation, Israel, in ruins. Now, we'll see in a moment how Israel got there. But before we do, let's just imagine our fears, whatever they may be, are in fact realized. And we, like Israel, are ruined. What then? We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2 of Nehemiah this morning. You'll find it if you need a Bible to look along with. And I would encourage you to pull one of those pew Bibles out and turn to page 398. And my sermon will follow the narrative through its three parts. The section's broken up into three parts. Verse 1 to 3 of chapter 1. And then chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And then at the end, the third part, chapter 2, verse 18 through 20. So obviously that middle section is the biggest. And that's where we're going to spend the most of our time. And here's a statement that we're going to take apart and consider together. A a statement that I think presents the message of these two chapters. And it's this. When we are ruined, we need a godly leader who will restore us. When we are ruined, we need a godly leader who will restore us. So let's look at the first section and consider the first part of that statement. When we're ruined. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, to understand the setting of this book and what we're diving into here, we need to do a very quick flyby over the history of Israel. Things were not always as dire as we find them here. God brought a little people long ago, before this time, a little people who were slaves in Egypt to a place of regional dominance over the past few hundred years. They had seen days... When surrounding nations feared them, brought them tribute, pled for peaceable treaties with them. But Israel forgot their God, the source of their security, 
their growth, their prominence. And as they did, they looked away from him to themselves and other countries they looked to to maintain their status and position. And in time, the foundations crumbled, just like the walls of Jerusalem. Eventually, God allowed a Babylonian invasion that led to a total destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and the exile of everyone in the southern kingdom of Judah. In time, the Persian Empire would rise and the Babylonian Empire would fall. And the book of Ezra, the one you'll find just before Nehemiah, tells how God moved King Cyrus of Persia to authorize and assist Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the central place of worship to God. So the events of Nehemiah overlap those of Ezra and all of this happening somewhere in the 5th century B.C. So there Nehemiah is in the capital city of Susa, serving as we find out in just a moment in verse 11, serving the current Persian king Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. A few years have passed, we think, since the work began in Jerusalem when Ezra went. And friends, maybe even family, it mentions brothers, come back to visit and report to Nehemiah. And the report Nehemiah gets is not good. The people who went back are not doing well. They are in trouble and in shame. And according to the report, their plight stems from the state of the city itself. The walls and the gates are in ruins. Jerusalem and the Jews within are weak, defensive, and vulnerable on all sides. Hardly the picture of Israel earlier on when King Solomon reigned and Israel had peace for 40 years straight. Israel had seen much better days. What was is not what is. The past was far preferable to the present. What about you? You find yourself daydreaming about what used to be? Longing for better days, bemoaning what has become of your life or our world, afraid to look ahead because you dread to think things might get worse than they are now? Maybe in that way you can relate to Israel's position. For Israel, it just couldn't get any worse. Or maybe you can't relate because life is good for you right now. Friend, there's nothing wrong with peace. But remember to thank God for that peace. He gave it to you. And I hope that the main peace we are enjoying right now is the peace that we have with God. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and for me. He took out. He took us out of the ruins of our sin. He ended our war by going to war against sin and death for us. He provided the victory when we could not. Maybe your marriage is ruined. Maybe your finances are ruined. Maybe your relationships are ruined. Maybe you yourself are ruined and you know it. 
You're locked in destructive behavior. You're addicted to things that are not good in God's eyes and not good for you. And no matter how hard you try, you stay in that weak and defenseless state, just like a city with no walls to protect you from the next attack from inside or from out. Ruin is a reality in many of our lives. The flashy facade showcased in store windows and on influencers' Instagrams is not the way things really are. Cultures that parade their wealth and prop up the passing beauty of fashion and celebrity and youth, that is a cover-up. So let's make sure that material blessing is not keeping us from seeing spiritual ruin around us or even In us, there is evidence of brokenness in our own lives, in the lives of those we love, in our church, in our communities. If you haven't suspected as much, but you haven't quite identified the root cause, then I pray that you're helped to see today that when we leave God, we invite our ruin. So what, if anything, can be done for ruined people? Well, we turn to the second section and we find that when we're ruined, we need a godly leader. We need a godly leader. In just the first two chapters here, the story is going to make a huge and positive leap forward. By the end of chapter 2, work will have begun on rebuilding the walls. And there is tremendous morale. And it's the part in between that explains how that will happen. The leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah emerges here as the leader needed for the time and the task. How did Nehemiah do it? Well, let's look and see. There are five aspects here of Nehemiah's leadership in this middle section. The first is that Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah prays. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Notice prayer is the first thing Nehemiah does. That alone 
is an invaluable lesson for all of us this week. Pray first. Before despairing over what was, what is, or may be about to be ruined, pray and talk to God. Before boasting in what you've achieved, pray and give God credit instead. Before mindlessly swiping through social media, pray to the God who lives and moves and has a purpose for you to know him and love him and know and love other people in practical, tangible, personal ways. And Nehemiah's prayer is a model prayer for us to follow and and build our prayers off of. He begins with praise to God for who he is and what he's done. From there, he moves into confession, acknowledging Israel's sin, his own sin, and how they turned on God's love and law and loved other things more. His prayer is guided by God's word. He uses God's own word to guide him in expressing what it is he wants to talk to God about. He points to God's covenant promises, the curse God promised to visit on Israel if they disobeyed, and the promise that if Israel returned, God would restore. And at the end of the prayer, he asks. He asks for God's will to be done. We don't yet know in the story what Nehemiah has in his mind to do. But whatever it is, he desires to do it out of reverence for God. It's a desire to do something for God. And it's an awareness that he needs God in order to succeed. If Nehemiah is to have what he asks for, God must provide. If Nehemiah is to have success, God must make his way. So here's a shape for our prayers together, church. Pray first. And pray in praise, confession, guided by God's word, and longing in and through what we ask for that God's will would be done. The second aspect of Nehemiah's leadership on display here is not just that he prays, but that Nehemiah risks. He risks. So pick up there, the end of verse 11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. 
Nehemiah risks. He risks his comfort. Considering the circumstances, Nehemiah has a pretty sweet job. Out of all the people in the vast Persian empire, Nehemiah is the one the king of Persia trusts the most. You see, assassination by poisoning was a real threat in those days. And to ensure that that didn't happen, the cupbearer's job was to first taste the contents of the cup before the king and make sure no one else tampered with it before it got to the king. And as part of this royal court, Nehemiah likely enjoyed certain perks. Good food, good lodging, some status. About as good as it could get for a guy who wasn't actually Persian and who, up until recently, didn't even have a home country to go back to. And yet, in his request to go help in Jerusalem, he demonstrates he's willing to lose all of this. He risks his comfort. Nehemiah also risks for others. We're not sure if Nehemiah had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem before this point, but what we do see here is Nehemiah is willing to go now. Seeing the plight of his countrymen, the ruined state of things, Nehemiah decides he will risk himself. Now, to help us understand exactly how big of a risk that was, the book of Esther helps us out. In Esther, we see that for anybody to come before the king without his invitation, that person could reasonably be put to death, even if it's the king's wife. So Nehemiah, we see, is trying to hide the fact that he's even sad. But in God's providence, the king sniffs it out. His sadness, he feels, cannot be concealed. And this weighs, this sadness weighs on Nehemiah. And at the pivotal moment when he's given the opportunity to ask, he admits he was really afraid. This is a great risk. And yet something greater weighs on him. God's people... In God's place are in ruins. And Nehemiah's face betrays how grieved he is by this. So Nehemiah decides to risk his own comfort, maybe even his life, with the prayer that others could benefit as a result. He makes an audacious ask. That the king would release him. This is most trusted cupbearer to go help rebuild the walls. And not only that, for protection on his journey. And not only that, but resources from the king's forest to provide the materials for the project. He risks for others. And he risks with faith, not fear. Nehemiah admits to being afraid, but fear does not derail him. Before he asks the king, he asks for help from God. While he's asking, he's praying. And when the answer comes back, Nehemiah knows that God has done all these things because he's good. Are you and am I risking anything right now? Are you inviting any discomfort, any sacrifice for someone else's good? Are you afraid of personal ruin so much that you can't hear the voice of Jesus telling you that to gain you must lay down? Are you missing out on Paul's joy that to live is Christ and to die is gain? When we risk for God, there is a good chance, friends, that we're going to lose earthly things. A very good chance. 
But when we lose on this earth, we gain in heaven's rewards. And that's worth losing for. Brothers and sisters, I encourage us to survey our lives this week and ask God to clearly show us what he would have us risk for others. And then in obedience to him, take the risk. Third aspect of Nehemiah's leadership here is that he acts. A-C-T-S. He acts, not A-X-E. He acts, A-C-T-S. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Nehemiah goes and begins pursuing what God would have him to do. What God had prompted him to do. From Nehemiah we learn that as soon as we have an idea for God's glory and we begin pursuing it. We should expect opposition will soon follow. And the intensity of the opposition for Nehemiah will only increase from here. We'll look at it over and over again in this series. How clearly this statement in verse 10 explains the bitterness of God's enemies. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Oh, how often it is when we're sinning against God, we stop rejoicing with those God is blessing. It's easy to be cynical, though, about people in leadership who help others and get a lot of publicity for it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I often wonder, like, people get promoted out of helping people. I'm also like, well, why did you do that? Did you do it because you wanted to help the people or did you want it? the accolades? You can be cynical about that. We might think people do this kind of thing for the applause, not for the people, but not Nehemiah. He doesn't let anybody in Jerusalem know he's even there. He doesn't publicize how he's thinking about rebuilding the walls. He doesn't organize this public event with the rulers to go walk around the walls with him and get a lot of camera snapshots that go in the newspaper. No, he seems okay with no praise. Just the presence of God with him. The fact that God had put in on his heart was reason enough to go through with the plan. Church, the good work we do is good because God gave it to us to do. People's recognition, if it comes, doesn't make it better than if God had just seen us do it and no one else. 
When you serve selflessly, give sacrificially, prioritize someone that they don't notice, know that God gave you that activity to do, and it's good. The idea that prompted you to act, the resources that you have to act, the heart that wanted to act, God put that gift in you and let you have the opportunity to give it to another. In that way, God invites us into the Jesus way of loving through selfless action. Doesn't that make you want to ask him for more of those kinds of gifts? Those opportunities to serve. Fourth thing about Nehemiah's leadership here we see is that Nehemiah gathers. Look at chapter 2 verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So Nehemiah doesn't keep this idea private for long. When he's sure he understands the situation, he pulls all the people together. He agrees how bad it is. And then he offers a solution. I think it's tragic. I think it's absolutely tragic. How people can build a huge platform these days by criticizing everyone else. Most news networks are thriving on a message that the world is bad and only getting worse. Politicians tell you a vote for them is good, mostly, so that you don't have to live under what their opponent would do in office, they claim. I could use this whole point to set up application about many poor leaders there are in churches. But what good would come for that for the kingdom of God? Nehemiah is a good leader because he gathers people around a uniting purpose and mission for the glory of God. And he lets them know this is something for all of them to participate in. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Isn't this what Jesus does in making the church? From the scattered reaches of our spiritual ruin, he goes and he finds the lost and brings them home. He breaks down the division that exists. He puts an end to our fights against each other and makes us one with himself and with each other. And he puts us on a mission to make Jesus known, to go out and gather the lost in Jesus' name. Look around this room and recognize that God has gathered us through Jesus through so many different paths and providences by his great mercy. If you take some time to hear the stories of others who are here, you will be amazed at the way that God can bring people to be united in purpose when we are so very different. Would you, as we think about this and Nehemiah's gathering people and the role he played in leading God's people to a united purpose and mission, I just want to ask that you would keep praying that those who serve as elders here would do this well. Here is the kind of leadership that we want you to pray that we will be enabled by God to give you. The kind that magnifies the power of God. The kind that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers us not to be fearful, but be hopeful by what God might do 
And the kind that regularly speaks to you, church, with full-hearted encouragement and says, let us rise up and build this church of Jesus. Let us take this gospel of Christ Jesus to each other and to the world. The fifth aspect of Nehemiah's leadership is woven throughout this whole section. And it's this. Nehemiah depends on God. He trusts God. This whole book will demonstrate the the gifts of good leadership. Nehemiah will repeatedly emerge as a help to those he leads. But the hero that Nehemiah sees is not himself. It's God. He appeals to God in his prayer that God would use his power in his strong hand. He sees that Artaxerxes gave him all he needed because the heavenly king was guiding the heart of the earthly king. He testifies as soon as he gathers everyone that this is all God's idea and encourages them that God will make the plan succeed. Show me a man or a woman or a child who has their eyes on God. Depending on him. Occupied by how wonderful and powerful God is to do whatever he wants. And I'll tell you that's who I want is my example. A leader in any sphere is helpful to those they lead when they can point others to a foundation that is better, stronger, and more capable than themselves. Husbands, parents, bosses, leaders, act for the good of those under you because that shows them you follow and believe in God who has been so good to you. People in spiritual ruin need a leader who prays, who risks, who acts, who gathers and trusts and depends on God. Picture Nehemiah in the middle of that night walking the walls of Jerusalem. Only a few with him. Only he knows what he is going to do. Then think of Jesus in the garden in the middle of the night. Just outside the walls that will be rebuilt in Nehemiah, only he knows what he's going to do. Only a few, di- few disciples nearby with him. There he prays, asking in his prayer that his father's will be done. There he determines that he will risk his life, lay it down for sinners. There, upon praying, he will rise from prayer to act. And in a few hours, he will be taken just outside these walls and he will be crucified to suffer the wrath of God against our sin. On the cross, he takes the cup in his own hands. And instead of handing it to another king to drink, he, the king, drinks it down himself. He bears the cup. He drinks the cup. He dies in our place. And then three days later, outside those walls, Jesus rises from death. Our champion leader who trusted God with his life and God vindicates him. And now this ascended savior gathers all ruined sinners, reclaiming and redeeming anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in him. He calls us now sons and daughters. We were scattered and shameful people and now we are the children of God. 
Hallelujah. What a savior. Jesus Christ is the leader we need to bring us out of our ruin of sin. Sinner, see the savior and follow him into life. Brothers and sisters in this church, follow Jesus. Follow him as he leads us in this way. Pray, risk, act, gather, trust. He has given each of us, his children here, everything we need to lead others as he has led us and leads us. We so need each of you, each of us to lead in our church. Our culture so needs you to lead like Christ in your spheres of influence beyond this meeting. Our homes need you, moms and dads. Our wives and our husbands so need this of each other. Our church members and our church pastors need to be led in this way by each other. May God help us to have the sensitive heart of Nehemiah who can't bear not to act. May he give us godly instincts to act for another's good over our own self-interest. To be people who pray, who sacrifice so others may gain. And who do it for people and not for praise. May God make us to be examples to one another. How to give up our fear of losing all. Be it our future, our finances, our freedoms. And instead trust our great and awesome God. Those are the two sections that tell us when we're ruined we need a godly leader. We're going to finish our time in our last part of our phrase. Let's consider where we see that when we're ruined we need a godly leader who will restore us, who will restore us. Look at verse 18 in chapter 2. That's second half. After Nehemiah has talked to them, they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sembalat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and now another enemy has joined them, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Look how different the scene is from where we started. The people are not in trouble or in shame. They're lifted. They're strengthened. They're hoping in their God. They're getting to share in the work. And they know this is a good inheritance that God's given them to do and be about. What a shift. In our world of divisions, there's something valuable to notice here. People who know they're ruined without God are those who seek unity around God. Could it be that the divisions that happen in our relationships, our churches, our culture... Happen because in some way we forget how ruined we'd be if not for the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of reversal that God's presence and grace brings through Jesus Christ. If Israel could be this confident and resilient after what we just seen of them, this unified in the work around Nehemiah, how much more can we be around Jesus? Jesus raised us. He raised us the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap. He has made us to sit with princes and given us a seat of honor. Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul describes the church as God's building project. A work he begins when he gathers people from all, un- all over, unites them in Christ, and then grows them through his indwelling spirit. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul encourages every Christian to see themselves integrally connected to this building project. The risen and ascended Jesus, our chief leader, gives leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? It's building up the body of Christ. How do we do that work among each other? Well, thankfully, Paul goes on to explain. In Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he tells us how. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I wonder if you've ever noticed that before. It builds itself up in love. Warner Road, there's restoration work to do here. To be a part of this is a high and holy calling. One that each Christian is summoned to do. Notice how Nehemiah assumes this work will take everyone from the priests to the nobles to the Jews to everyone else. Verse 16. So think of the building opportunities in front of us. Some of us are scattered. Being pulled away by the temptations of the world. We build By lovingly encouraging the wandering back to walk in the truth. Some of us are discouraged. Feeling the weight of disappointment, fatigue, and the long road of trial and suffering. We build up the faint-hearted with encouragement. To see that our God will not abandon his people. And we have a share in his reward. Some of us are ready and eager for God's glory. But you don't know Where to start and how? Begin building here in this church. Love others. Look to strengthen others in their faith in Jesus. Find somebody to pray with. Gather people around God's word and study the Bible. Adopt Nehemiah's builder's perspective that when he saw an opening in the walls, he took initiative to arrange for the wall to be restored. May we take the same initiative with each other. Take action for our good. And not only those inside this church, but those outside as well. After all, this is a unified mission and purpose that Jesus gathers us around to be a witness to the greatness of the master builder himself. The one who takes the ruined and restores them through the gospel. When the church gathers and acts for the good of others in Jesus' name, the world will see the power of God to restore from ruin. This restoration could never happen here or anywhere without God. As Jeff prayed and helped us think about this morning. Turn us to God. Know that he must act. And amen. And God in acting will choose to use his people as his instrument for action. This work will take time. This work will at times be hard. We're reminded of that even as the opposition to Nehemiah gets more vocal in verse 19. But if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? So we can build with patience and we can wait on God and we can rely on his word and his promises. And as we take part in building the gates of this church, we know based on Jesus' promise that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will not always know where the strength or the equipping or the resources for this work will come from. But if God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all the things necessary for the work? By the end of Nehemiah 2, we watch God beginning to restore his people from ruin. God's people are encouraged in the Lord, doing God's work in God's place for God's glory. So Christian, as you endeavor to engage in this work this week, remember that our leader is none other than the great and awesome God. Remember that Jesus right now is making good on his promise to go and prepare a place for his people. Even as he helps us to build up this church here on earth, he is right now building our home with him in heaven. When we have lived, when we have persevered in faith and in love, when we have prayed and risked, acted and trusted in God time and time again, when we have died and this work that we see is not yet completed, then Jesus will come back and he will raise us and we will claim our portion in the heavenly city. We'll never know trouble or shame again. And we will forever live rejoicing in Jesus who restored us from ruin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise as we think about how it is through your word and through your action you orchestrated our redemption. How you work so that your son would come and, and grab us from the grave and lift us out by his own power of his own risking and acting and trusting you along the way to give his life. And then you vindicating him and raising him. Lord, we praise you for making that possible. Had you not acted, had your good hand not been acting in history to make that possible, Lord, we would be ruined forever. We praise you. And we pray in thanks that you've seen fit as part of your building of your people to involve us. And so we pray we would go from here seeing clearly what it means to follow you in that way. That we would be a part of that. That we would welcome the opportunity to do your good work with each other. We pray that you be glorified in that. That your church would be built and that others would be brought in. And Lord, please increase as we go. As we wait, increase our longing for the heavenly place you're making for us. Where we will be with you. And we will enjoy your good work forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.